The reading is John 21, verse 1 to 19, and it's on page 1090 in the Pew Bibles, and 1737 in the large print ones. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going up to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, well, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples didn't realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment round him, for he'd taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about 100 yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there, with fish on it, and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you? Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else 
will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. This is the word of the Lord. You and Menely, thank you so much. Let's just pray together. God of all glory, would you please nourish us with your word this morning so that the light of your resurrection glory may shine in this world through us, your servants in Christ Jesus. Amen. Andy Wheeler is enjoying a well-earned rest on the Isle of Wight this week, but last week when he was preaching, he posed two questions for us. Firstly, when do we recognize Christ in the rhythm of our daily lives? And secondly, how should we respond to the call to become fishers of men? I love John's Gospel. It is so poetic, it's so full of imagery and symbolism. I think the exciting thing about John's Gospel is that we are dealing with somebody who is overwhelmed by the vastness of Christ, by his divinity and by the significance of his acts on earth. I mean, you've only got to read the, you've only got to read the last verse of chapter 20 to capture that sense of excitement and awe. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. This is somebody who is, no wonder they call this the eagle gospel, because it soars into heaven with steady wings and a searching gaze. But I think of all the gospel writers, of all the gospel writers, John was probably more aware of the problems that are created after Easter by the departure of Christ. You can see that by looking at the way his 21 chapters are plotted because Jesus' public ministry actually finishes in chapter 12. Those first 12 chapters are often referred to as the Book of Signs. They're a record of Jesus' public ministry and his miracles. The remaining nine chapters are called the Book of Glory, because it's all about farewells. A farewell meal, a farewell discourse, a farewell prayer, and then this, this final farewell. It's probably written at Ephesus during the last decade of the first century, so Jerusalem had fallen and Gnostic heresies were rife, and they taught the idea that salvation was obtained through wisdom, they denied the incarnation of Christ and his atonement for sins. They said that the appearances of Christ were merely visions or dreams. But as Ignatius, writing to the church in Smyrna, points out, dreams don't cook and eat fish. 
Clement of Alexandria says John's Gospel was written by the Apostle at the request of his friends to counter these heresies. But I wonder, his, his passion for the truth is so intense, did he really need much prompting? John's Gospel actually has two endings. In the first, the disciples think it's all over, they hide in an upstairs room, and Jesus comes to them and breathes new life into them, which would seem like a good place to end the gospel. Instead, instead, John adds this story of a lakeside breakfast. I suppose we can't blame John for lingering over his endings, because as human beings, well, we're much better at beginnings, aren't we? When everything is new and full of excitement and possibility. We like beginnings better than we like endings. We like holding babies better than we like going to nursing homes. We like to say hello better than we'd say goodbye. We like daybreak better than midnight. But John, so eager in writing his gospel, he wants to make sure that he gives us everything we might need to make it through our long nights while we wait for daybreak to come. So he tells this story about a long night for the disciples that happened soon after Easter. We don't know exactly how soon after, but it had to be long enough for them to trek back to Galilee from Jerusalem. After all, Galilee was their home. This is the place where everything had begun. So going back home for them was only natural once it seemed that everything had come to an end. It was Maytime when they returned to Galilee. The fragrance of the thyme and the rosemary would have filled the air. The lakeside would have been dimpled in the light of the setting sun. The purple hills would have stood around like sentinels, promising that that night no storm would imperil their lives. There stood the old familiar boats, there lay the nets, yonder the promise of fish, and the old instincts of the fishermen rose in their hearts and found expression on Peter's lips. I'm going fishing, he tells the others, and they join him for the night because the night time is the best time to fish because that's when the fish rise to the surface. John says there were only seven disciples, so some of the disciples had already gone off in different directions. But these seven, Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, James, his brother John, and probably Andrew and Philip, their old fishing partners, they set off into the boat. Hands up if you've been fishing recently. Anybody been fishing? Oh yes, there's one. That's great. Good, well done. I mean, fishing's a great idea, isn't it, when you want to do nothing. Just let the sort of silence and the lapping of the water, just let the silence of the... It's a, it's a man's thing, okay? <laughs> but it's a lovely, a lovely opportunity for us to daydream. But for these guys, fishing is very, very different because it's their occupation. They don't fish for pleasure. They fish for a living with big, heavy nets that smell of dried fish scales nets that they've hauled out of the bottom of boats which, with hands that are toughened from years of casting and hauling and strailing. 
So when they decide to go fishing, it's a decision to return to a former way of life, to go back to the only thing they really know what to do without him. He's gone after all. They've not seen him since Jerusalem. And while that was a powerful time that none of them will forget, now it's time to get on with life again. Memory is one thing, but the future is another. His life on earth may have ended, but their life still has to go on. They need to put food on the table, have a roof over their heads. So what do they do? They go fishing. Each of them sunk in his own thoughts as he climbs into the old familiar boat again. None more so than Peter. He's been here before, but when that sense of deja vu is hanging all around him, does it seem like a hundred years ago? Or was it yesterday? Was it all a dream? Was it too good to be true the way Jesus walked up to him, spoken to him, like somebody who had known him all his life? So there was no doubt when Simon Bar-Jonas, as he was then, what he would do. He, he, he had to follow him. But now, now as the boat rocks in the water, he's lost in the dark bleakness of his thoughts. Only hours before the arrest, he'd sworn undying allegiance to Jesus, sworn to follow him to the ends of the earth. He'd even drawn his sword in a flush of anger and sliced off the ear of the high priest's slave. But then, then, huddled around that charcoal brazier in that courtyard, his heart heavy, leaden in his chest, his beloved Lord dragged away, deserted by his followers, Peter's courage had drained away. And now, sitting moodily, silent in this boat, his face contorts in a flush of shame as he recalls his brusque denials. Not once, not twice, but three times, just as his Lord had predicted. He should have known better than to have believed it, staked his life on something that had come to such a quick and bloody end. He should have realized that it would all boil down to business as usual, back to the grindstone, all that wild, joyful expectation reduced to grim, shame-faced resignation. When push came to shove, he'd failed him completely. Jesus should have chosen John, the beloved disciple. He was far quicker on the uptake, a much better choice as a rock for a church. No, the sooner he got back to fishing for a living, the better. At least, he thought, he couldn't muck that up. Or could he? He'd fished all night without catching a single thing. Time after time after time, their nets had come up empty, a perfect match for the feeling in his heart. He can't go forward. He can't go back. All he can do is to sit in the boat in the dark, 
watching the sky changing color as the sun gradually rises behind the hills. That's when they hear him. They can't see him, but somebody's calling out to them from the shore. Probably one of the local fish dealers. It was customary for them to come down to the shore at dawn to greet the fishermen. And this is going to be really embarrassing. Empty nets. But whoever he is, it looks like he's guessed the truth, that they've caught nothing. And he suggests they try the other side of the boat. So they do. They put their nets out on the starboard side, the right side of the boat. The right side, which in Jewish folklore signifies blessing and prosperity. And what happens? The water begins to boil with a massive show of fish. And for Peter, it's deja vu all over again. The boats, the nets, the stranger calling out to him, it's not the end after all. The end has led him back to the beginning. And suddenly, guessing the truth, the beloved disciple John shouts out, it's the Lord! And what was a dismal night of despair turns into a scene of joyish pandemonium. Poor old Peter, he's desperate to get to Jesus. He needs to get dressed first. He can't wait for them to row ashore. So he jumps into the water, only this time he wades rather than trying to walk. When he climbs out, he smells a charcoal fire with fish already on it and bread. And most of all, the cook, who is his beloved Lord, who says, come to his wet, happy disciple, come and have breakfast. He's not serving supper this time. That was the last meal of their old life together. This is the first meal of their new life together. A resurrection breakfast prepared by the only one who knows the recipe. Did the smell of the charcoal fire remind Peter of the shame of his denials? Later on, as Jesus takes Peter to one side, he calls him gently by his old name, Simon. Not to ask him if he's sorry, as we might do. Not to ask him to promise not to do it again but simply in gracious forgiveness to give Simon Peter the chance to recognize that his shameful failure, his weakness of character, is the strong building block that Jesus can now use. So that Peter's future ministry will be founded not on the power of his own abilities, not on his eloquence, not on his theological knowledge, but solely solely on the restorative power of Christ's love, that before ever, before ever faith and obedience can be exercised, before ever faith and obedience can be exercised, love for the Lord, the distinctive feature of Peter's calling, and ours as fishers of men, as fishers of souls, comes before all else. 
for Peter. The memory of his threefold denial stays with him, but the shame has been wiped away. But there's more to it than that. By asking if he loves him, Jesus is restoring Peter, re-equipping him to face the trials that lie ahead. And now, Peter's declaration of love brings him a two-fold commission, a task to be formed, to feed my sheep, and a cross to die on. A task to perform, feed my sheep, and a cross to die on. A few years ago, Rosemary and I visited the same beach on the shores of Lake Galilee. And as I sat there quietly with my eyes closed and I took it all in, I could almost smell that charcoal fire, the heat and the steam rising in the early morning sunlight, those fish sizzling away, the smell of the newly baked bread, and the sound of the water lapping gently on the shore. It was a surreal experience. I don't know why so many of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances have something to do with food, but they do. It happens twice in Luke's Gospel, on the road to Emmaus, where Jesus is made known to his two disciples by the breaking of bread, and then later when he appears to them all and eats a piece of broiled fish. Then there is this breakfast meal on the lakeside in the early morning. It's just a walk away from where that other meal took place beside the same lake with the, you know the one I'm talking about, the five loaves and the two fishes. Why food? Maybe it's because eating is so necessary for life, and so is he. Or is it because sharing a meal together marks us out as humans? We enjoy the fellowship together. And when the risen Lord is invited to the table to bless the food and to stand in our midst, he feeds us spiritually as well. So what threads can we draw from this, this wonderful, wonderful story? Well, the last ending, this last story in John's Gospel is full of clues for those times when it seems we too are marooned on the water, stuck in a dark place, afraid that we've come to the end of something without any idea how to begin again. When we're in that place, then it could be a good time, it could make sense, like Peter, to listen to the voice of a stranger, especially one who seems to know things about you that they've really no way of knowing whether they're giving advice about where to cast our nets next, or just being there, it's probably a good idea to pay attention. Because Jesus has a wardrobe full of disguises. And here's another clue from this story that he may be somewhere around, even if we don't recognize him at first. And that clue is an unexpected change in our fortunes. I don't mean winning the lottery, and I'm not talking about rags to riches necessarily, since he seems actually to prefer rags. 
but it's, it's more a sudden change in the way life looks to you. One moment it all looks very bleak, and the next moment we start to see a glimmer of light. We haul in our nets, and instead of them being completely empty, there's something wriggling about in there that gives us new hope. It may be a little something, or it may be a lot, but it's alive. It's alive where there was nothing there a moment before. A living thing where there was only darkness and defeat, even death before. It's the Lord, the beloved disciple said. How did he know? How do any of us know? By keeping a lookout by refusing to accept that our nets will stay empty all of our nights, by listening for the stranger who calls us from the shore. So when we get closer, we discover he turns out to be not a stranger at all. For those with ears that hear his call, his is a voice that can turn all our dead, dead ends into new beginnings. Come, that voice says, I can restore you, I can make you whole again, so that my love in and through you can overflow to others, such that no heart can resist. For together, says Jesus, in love, together, he says, we can bear all, believe all, hope all, and endure all. Come that voice says this morning, I will restore you once more if you will only share a resurrection breakfast with me. Amen. Just going to have a time of quiet reflection now for a few minutes, or for a minute before we sing our, our last hymn.